From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's program, fighting climate change one morsel at a time. It's easy to forget this, but what we eat has a massive impact on global warming and the health of our planet. Take the example of livestock production. It accounts for 70% of all agricultural land use and is responsible for nearly a fifth of all greenhouse gas emissions. How food is manufactured, what pesticides are used, and how it is transported to market, all of that shapes its contribution to global warming. You've probably heard some tips about reducing your own diet's footprint. Vegan and veggie diets are best, beef and lamb are probably the worst, and we could all do our part to reduce food waste. These are personal choices though, but how do we go about creating a global food system, the future of food really, that's not just healthier for us, but will help us sustain the health of our planet? That's one question being investigated by Ernst Vandenend. He's Managing Director of Plant Sciences at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, a country that's considered to be on the forefront of inventing the future of farming. He spent his career thinking about how to create sustainable food systems, as well as what individuals can do to be more climate conscious with what we eat. Ernst Vandenend, welcome to Heat of the Moment. Yeah, thank you. I'm wondering if you can tell me about how you got into this line of um, work and, and what what you're most passionate about when it comes to rethinking the way that we grow our food? No, I'm, I'm very passionate. So I'm an ecologist and I started to work as a scientist. I studied plant protection. So the biggest driver behind my work is that I really want to come up with solutions for the big challenges in the world. And I want to make sure that we have a nice earth to live on and that we uh, restore all the nature uh, reserve area that we have. So for me, that's a a very important driver behind my work and and within the plant sciences group. Uh, So I'm leading the plant sciences group. I've got 1,400 people uh, that are all focusing to explore the potential of nature to improve the quality of life. And I think that is really the driver behind our work. So, you know, in the Netherlands, you all have this reputation as being kind of the leaders in thought about the future of farming. Um, tell me about that. How does the country develop that reputation? So maybe uh, then I, I should start with the fact why, why the Netherlands is that strong in agriculture. And that started really uh, at the end of the Second World War, or, or maybe even earlier, where the Dutch decided to invest a lot in innovation and uh, to open up the borders and to really think about how innovation could solve a few of the big challenges within agriculture. And what was quite special about the Dutch setting was that there was a strong collaboration between the government, the industry and the science institutes. And they came up with research programs or programs focusing on innovation that really would help in producing food in a more sustainable way. And that was really the strength And I think over the years and over the decades, it really shifted from trying to come up with solutions that really offer the highest yields. And now we look for more solutions that offer sustainability. So using less pesticides, less fertilizer, less energy, and at the same time to produce enough food for the population in Europe and in the world. What does that look like? You know, so you described like using, you know, less pesticides, basically making... Uh, the production of food less resource or energy in- intensive in some ways? Yeah. I think it, that then you will really see a mixture of different farms. 
So what you probably will end up uh, within a few decades is that you will see very high technology-driven farms. For instance, the greenhouse uh, cultivation of vegetables. But it will also be mean that there are also farms that are very regional and that they produce locally the food for people that are living around these farms. And they are probably a little bit a mixture of animal and plant production uh, because you want to use the waste streams from one farm as a source for production in the other farm. And you can imagine that if you have a dairy, then you can use the manure of the dairy to use it as a fertilizer in uh, farms that are focusing on plant production. And in that way, we can design circular agriculture. But going back to the high-tech, I think a lot of people, they think that high-tech is really in contrary to uh, sustainability. And in our opinion, it isn't. And I very often use the example of tomato production. Mm. Uh, if you grow tomatoes in Spain, you will end up with four kilograms of tomatoes at the end of the growing season. If you do that in a high-tech greenhouse in the Netherlands nowadays, you will end up with 80 kilograms of tomatoes at the end oh, of the wow. growing season, which is 20 times more. But that's not the most inspiring aspect of the story, I would say, because this 80 kilograms of tomatoes will be produced under controlled conditions. And by doing so, we are able to control all the pests through biological agents and not with pesticides. And we use four times less water. And it's... Uh, focusing on trying to reduce the amount of energy a lot. So what you will see is that you offer a sustainable solution, whereas a lot of people will, fa will look at it and they say, oh, that's a very industrial way of producing food and that's not sustainable at all. And it's not. It's the contrary in this case. Hmm. I mean, and I, I've only been in one of these large greenhouses in British Columbia and Canada. But, I mean, it's fair to say that they cover, like, almost city blocks, right? Like, these are yeah, massive right. buildings. And it's an indoor growing method, right? So, like, grown with lights and in very controlled conditions at an industrial scale. So that is really the high-tech end of greenhouse production. But we work on a global scale. Uh, that means that sometimes uh, if we work in Mexico or in Africa, there is something in between. And uh, we use plastic funnels uh, to produce our crops. And in that way, again, we can control the environment. And that makes, in certain uh, situations, the cultivation of crops more sustainable. So we always look at solutions that really fit in a certain region or in a, f a certain uh, environment. Hmm. So aside from you know, the climate aspect of this, which is that we need to reduce the emissions that come from food now, I imagine there's also a pretty big scaling up of that system that has to happen in order to, to feed people. Yeah, um, to start with, if you look at a global scale at the moment, then uh, we lose around 30 to 40 percent of the food that can be produced. But of course, there are big differences all over the world. So if you go to Africa, you will see that in many areas during the production phase, we lose a lot of food because the yields are destroyed by pathogens or pests or weeds. And that is, of course, a problem. And then you see that in Africa, there is really a need to come up with agronomic uh, measures to improve the cultivation of plants and to produce more per square meter. If you go to India, again, we lose 30% of the food, but then during the logistics, so between the harvest and the consumer, during transport, because there is no cold chain, we lose an awful lot of food during uh, transport. 
And if you go to the Western world, like the United States or the Netherlands, again, we lose 30% or 40% of the food because people throw away their food from the fridge, uh, in the restaurants, and a lot of the produced food is wasted. Mm -hmm. So when I try to tell people what the real problem is, is then I, in the Western world, if you change your behavior and you change your diet, you can do an awful lot of things on sustainability. And if we try to consume less food, and if we don't throw away a lot of food, there is no need to produce more. So it's very region-specific. What are some tangible tips that you give people? Yeah, that starts already within my own family, of course. So uh, we celebrate the anti-food waste days uh, with my family, and we, we try to empty our fridge instead of throwing away our food. So if we have leftovers then on Fridays we eat all the leftovers of the whole week. That on itself is already more sustainable because if you throw away your food, that's not very sustainable. And of course, other things that you can do, uh, animal proteins are important for a diet, but in general, we ate too much uh, of animal proteins. So you can reduce the amount of animal proteins. And it's very good to realize yourself that if you want to produce one kilograms of meat, uh, you need 10 kilograms of uh, high-quality plant material. So if you reduce the meat consumption, you also reduce the pressure on plant production, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that here in the U.S. at least has been very visible in the last year or so is uh, like the appearance of many more options when it comes to you know vegetable, like, like the Impossible Burger is what I'm thinking yeah, of, you know, yeah, like alternatives yeah. to meat. Right? Yeah, so that is one way to go. The other thing is, and I think people should also realize that as soon as you use technology to process food, that of course on itself is also um, has an effect on the carbon footprint. So if you have the choice and you want to eat more plant proteins, just start to eat beans. And you don't have to come up with an impossible burger or whatsoever, just eat more <laughs> plant proteins. So if, if you imagine you know, our food systems in like 2100, say what, what does that look like if we get this right if we start thinking more strategically about how to use our resources and new technologies or what does that look like if we get it wrong or just keep sort of doing the same thing that we've been doing no i think there is an urgency to change the system and it will be more circular so um, we certainly would focus on reducing waste streams uh, through the whole chain, so not only during production, but also during transport and uh, at the consumer level. A big issue at the moment uh, are the new breeding techniques. Um, the majority of the scientists today, they say CRISPR-Cas can be uh, a solution for agriculture. Describe that for me. What, 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 is, what is that exactly? Uh, CRISPR-Cas is a technique where you um, um, really are able to create very small uh, differences in DNA uh, where we don't bring in new DNA but only change the, the DNA of a plant or a human being uh, in order to come up with new cultivars that are more resistant or uh, more tolerant to drought. Or, uh, and mutations have always been a part of breeding. So in the last century, we used so-called classical mutagenesis techniques and these techniques use a lot of radiation, for instance, to create differences in, in the genetics. That is shooting with a, with a big gun on a mosquito. We now have breeding techniques that are far more precise and far more safe, in a sense. Uh, but they are uh, qualified as GMOs, and that means that within the European setting, 
uh, it needs to be regulated as a GMO. And that, at the moment, stops uh, us from uh, coming up with new solutions in breeding. And I would like to have an open discussion with everybody on the positive and negative aspects of these kind of breeding techniques. And for so instance, I mean just as an example, we, we can use these techniques to make uh, potatoes more resistant uh, against fungi, and then we don't have to spray against these fungi. And um, I'm not uh, very fond on uh, using a lot of pesticides uh, mm. because uh, that can destroy the environment. So breeding is, a f is an important part of uh, our work. So when you're thinking about the future, are, are you optimistic about, uh, you know, our ability to create a food system that contributes less to climate change and feeds people? Or are you, are, are you fearful of what's No, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the innovations that I can offer. And sometimes uh, if I had bad, bad dreams, then I'm very pessimistic about changing behavior of people. Hmm. And I think the last one is quite important to really come up with sustainable solutions. And uh, people should start uh, with changing their own behavior. What does that look like in your house? Like, it sounds like you've done quite a lot of thinking about that for yourself and for your own family. Um, how's that played out? Did it ha and was there friction over it? <laughs> of course. I'm just as guilty as everybody, and I've got children that really like to have uh, a lot of chips or uh, things. That, but we, we try to reduce our consumption and, and try to be more uh, conscious about the things that we are doing. And I'm... That's what I said. I'm, I'm just as guilty. So I also like a bottle of wine uh, on a Saturday evening. But do I need it? No. No, I don't need it. I can also drink water. But, mm. yeah. yeah, it's part of life. <laughs> well, Ernst Vandenen, thank you so much for um, joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. That's Ernst Vandenen, Managing Director of Plant Sciences at Vangeningen University in the Netherlands. Hey, listeners, before we get back to the show, we wanted to tell you about another climate podcast you might enjoy called The Elephant. It features stories and interviews with some of the biggest climate scientists and thinkers in the world. The Elephant takes a deep dive into climate change and its possible solutions. For example, a recent series they produced explored if it might be possible to solve the climate crisis by using machines to draw huge amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere. You can find that series and all other episodes by subscribing to The Elephant, wherever you get your podcasts. It's estimated that a third of all food produced globally is wasted or lost each year. That's according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO. And think about that for a second. Lots of energy went into creating all of that food that we're not actually eating. By FAO estimates, if food waste were its own country, it would rank third globally in terms of its greenhouse gas emissions. That's after only the US and China. Awareness of this problem is driving innovation. And some of these ideas may be familiar to you. There's a company designing biodegradable packaging out of food waste, and there are mobile apps that help people share surplus food in their cities. And then there's this, insect farming. It's a model that uses insects to convert agricultural waste into fish and poultry feed. Reporter Julia Mitrich has this story about the promise of maggots. Trevor Fowles is lifting the lids on various plastic bins so he can show me where the black soldier fly larvae hang out. This is what it sounds like when a mass of these maggots eats their way through mashed up food waste. 
We're in a greenhouse down the road from the University of California, Davis, where Trevor is working on a PhD in entomology. It's humid and it smells odd, mossy, yeasty, slightly acrid. At the bottom of a different bin, about the size of a shoebox, we see tens of thousands of tiny larvae swirling and wriggling. The little size right here is about the size of grains of rice. These are about uh, five to eight days old. Just so you know, Trevor is reaching his hands in there and sifting through the tiny insects as if he were a kid playing in the sand. Absolutely. Um, On a nice cold day, they're quite warm. I am experiencing mild revulsion, but Trevor is clearly in his element. No, I love it. It's, uh, it's quite interesting seeing large amounts of maggots being produced. It's always fun to try to test yourself and see, well, can I just make this bigger? Can I have more flies, more maggots? I would be quite content just seeing tons and tons of maggots all at once. That would make me very happy. That's because multiplying maggots creates the potential to digest more food waste. And that is the central action of insect farming. Here's how Trevor explains the steps in the cycle. You give larvae some kind of diet, uh, food waste of different kinds. Uh, When they are done eating that material, you'll be left with their their manure, uh, also called frass, which we use as compost. But then you'll also have the larvae which have grown on the substrate or on that food. Uh, We'll take those larvae and then grind them into powders for animal feed, which will take out the proteins and separate the fats, and then you'll also have those fats. Trevor says those fats can be used as biofuel. But here's where the dollars and cents come in. He and a small team of fellow students working on this idea would sell the insect protein powder to commercial fish and poultry feed companies. The idea is that they could use it as a substitute for soybean protein. Back to the larvae for a second. Let's talk about that food waste they're digesting. It's not the leftovers you scraped off your plate into the garbage last night, or the carryout container at the back of the fridge. Trevor's maggots feed on pre-consumer food waste, stuff that's not part of the human diet. So we wouldn't eat orange peels, right? We wouldn't eat almond holes. We wouldn't eat the skins of tomato. You know when you buy fresh juice? There's beet skin and carrot fiber left behind. That almond milk latte you had on the way to work? Well, almond milk is strained from almond pulp that you really don't want to munch on. But black soldier fly larvae can and do extract nutrients from agricultural waste that's inedible to us. So where does all this ag waste come from? The Great Valley of Central California lies almost in the center of the state. It is more than 400 miles long and 60 miles wide. And except for the that inedible food waste is generated by the food processing sector of California's $50 billion agricultural economy. In the northern Central Valley, where Trevor is based, almonds, wine grapes, and tomatoes top the list. California's lead recycling agency doesn't track the volume of agricultural waste produced in the state or where it ends up. But a 2012 report for the California Energy Commission found that the food processing sector generates 3.5 million dry tons of solid residues each year. For a rough comparison, that weight would be like 175 great sphinxes of Giza. 
insect farming seems kind of small in comparison with the colossal proportions of global food waste. But for Trevor, the model is not just aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions from decomposing organic material. It's also about something even more basic, having enough resources to grow food for a global population projected to reach nearly 10 billion by 2050. Right now, commercially raised chickens eat a feed mix made from corn and soybeans grown for that purpose. But for food production to keep up with population growth, Trevor says, we'll need those land, water and energy resources to grow more food for humans. I think the ultimate goal of having insect farming be something that gets brought mainstream and industrialized is that it can have a huge impact in freeing up a lot more food to stay inside the human food system. By Trevor's math, each ton of insect protein produced means a ton of soybeans freed up to feed people, or wild fish left in the ocean instead of being caught for fish feed. After my visit to the greenhouse, I decided to test the fly farming concept by talking to someone who knows the poultry feed business. Chickens have been eating insects for a long time. And it's high protein, so it's nutritious. They taste the nutrition. That's Russ Hannock, owner of Modesto Feed in Modesto, California. He caters to backyard poultry owners, and chicken feed makes up about 20% of his sales. He buys it from large California suppliers, who, in turn, buy corn and soybeans from the Midwest. When we start talking insect protein, Russ mentions a popular snack he sells. These are freeze-dried mealworms, so they're they're high-protein, and chickens just go crazy over them. You get them onto that, and it's just like... Chicken crack, people call it, because they they just go crazy over it. Russ says the feasibility of Trevor's business model depends on how cheaply he can produce insect protein in comparison with soybean meal. That's the main protein in commercial chicken feed. Then there's the issue of scale. Here's what Russ said about Trevor's five-year goal of increasing production to five tons of insect protein a day. These other companies may, for the ducks of it, add something like that to their chicken feed if they thought that would enhance the selling points of it. But five tons a day, these these companies, you know, they they buy soybean meal in rail cars. They buy trains of trains of rail cars of soybean meal. They use, I mean, they use five tons in a minute. So the takeaway from Russ. Major poultry feed producers aren't going to fuss with an alternative protein source like black soldier fly larvae unless it's cheaper and available at industrial scale. After that conversation, I wanted to reach out to one more person from a totally different vantage point, someone who could weigh in on this maggot farming concept and whether it's relevant in the current world of food system innovation. We are in the midst of a redesign of the food production system. Renska Lind has worked on food-related issues for many years. In her role as co-founder of a Berkeley-based nonprofit accelerator called Food System 6, she advises emerging startups in the food system space. She's also a partner with an early-stage venture fund, First Course Capital, so she makes the call on which food innovation concepts to invest in. So I give Renska my version of Trevor's elevator pitch about black soldier fly farming. She confirms that insects are a big deal in the food system space. And even though she says it's early days, she calls the model of converting food waste into insect protein for animal feed fascinating. We look at the amount of food waste that's generated. 
we're going to need all of these solutions and more. Renska says the timing is right for innovations like this. There's growing recognition amongst consumers and and citizens, frankly, that the status quo of how we grow, produce, and distribute food is, is not sustainable. And that's translating into a shift in consumers' buying habits to the point where, Renska says, the industrial food system that's dominated the U.S. for the past 50 years is breaking down. So back to maggot protein. It may be early days for Trevor and his team, but there are U.S. and international companies already scaling insect farming. Renska says that fact won't keep a smaller Central Valley-based operation like Trevor's from growing and thriving within the $3 trillion global food and ag marketplace. Renska adds that scaling the fly farming business will be a hurdle. And she points out it will be up to Trevor and his team to connect the dots for consumers when it comes to how insect protein can be a more sustainable animal feed source. If you can't quite get people to understand even the problem set, then them understanding your solution is going to obviously also be difficult. Okay, let's say you manage to bring people on board in terms of reducing waste in the food system. Still, do you ever really want to use the word maggots in your pitch? My advice would be not to hide it and actually to, to really lean into it and, and talk about how exciting this is and how interesting this is and how innovative this is. I wouldn't be euphemistic. We just are seeing people that just want the straight story. Trevor finds black soldier flies quite charismatic. As for the maggots, well, he says they grow in the dark and no one has to see them. What we're really producing is an animal feed ingredient. And I think people can get behind uh, not taking fish out of the ocean and not taking soybeans away from humans when we need those uh, food sources. So I think the images and the logic behind that is a much stronger message than the squirminess of these little bugs. If this model of using maggots to convert ag waste into animal feed gains traction, it wouldn't be the first big idea that grew out of something very, very small. I'm Julia Mitrich in Sacramento. Next week on Heat of the Moment, how one indigenous community in the Amazon says it's protecting the land by harvesting the rainforest. He says he wasn't aware of all those differences among the trees before, or how much potential profit he could make from saving the forest rather than tearing it down. That's next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.